Couch Talk. Hello and welcome to Couch Talk. Today uh, we have Peter Delapena, who writes for uh, DreamCricket.com and ESPN.com as well as ESPNCricketInfo.com. You may have seen him at uh, uh, the Crickinfo blogs. Um, you know, his latest one is The Breath of Fresh Air under uh, the Stars, Stripes and Stumps in Crickinfo blogs. Um, he's a local grown talent within the United States, so we're going to hear from him about how he got into cricket and uh, also learn about his uh, upcoming book. So without further ado, Peter, are you there? How you doing, Subhash? Doing well. So, uh, you were born and brought up in the United States, is that correct? That is 100% correct. As hard as it might be to believe. I hope my accent doesn't uh, lead anybody to think otherwise. Yeah, I'm, I'm a born and raised American. So, why and how did you get into cricket? Well, uh, the two-minute version of the story is that I studied abroad in... Sydney in the summer of 2005, and the day I landed was right after the first day's play had concluded at Lords during the 2005 Ashes, and so I, I landed in Brisbane uh, for my experience, and I was waiting for a connecting flight to go to Cairns for my orientation, and I was trying to find something to do to pass the time, and I went to one of the newsstands and picked up a copy of the Sydney Morning Herald and splashed right across the front page is this picture of Ricky Ponting, cut and bleeding. He's got this blood streaking down his cheek, and the headline says, Bloody hell, these palms mean business. And I'm looking at this like, what the hell does this mean? Like, who is this guy? <laughs> like, you know, what what is a palm? What is, you know, and then I started reading the, the summary, and it's, starts talking about how Australia was whatever the score was at either lunch or tea when the when the cutoff was for the deadline to go to print in Australia and you know, Justin Langer is caught pulling it mid on for however many and Damian Martin is LBW or however he got out and like LBW and what you know, what the hell is that and uh, you know what is all this stuff that they're talking about it might as well have been written in Chinese I had no clue what was going on and um, but I got to the accommodation where we were staying at. There was about 75 or 80 of us going to this orientation in Kansas before we, we went off to uh, Macquarie University, which was where I was studying for the, the, that semester from July through November. And um, we get to the hostel, and that night on the televisions, all you saw was cricket. And I tried watching. I could pick up a few things here and there. You could figure out what a boundary was, you know, when they hit the ball and it rolled across the ropes, the four runs ticked off on the scoreboard on the screen. So that was fairly straightforward. And when a wicket fell, everybody went berserk and they started screaming and shouting, <laughs> yelling and running around like it's the final out of the World Series. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, the one person who stood out, I didn't know his name at the time. It took me, you know, the, another week or two to, to find out who it was. But the camera always kept on going to Shane Warren. You know, it was always this guy on the screen who was got this, you know, bleach blonde hair and... Um, you know, whenever he's got the ball in his hand, he's you know, bouncing up to the wicket, ripping it loose, and just screaming at the top of his lungs. And for an LBW shot or coffee hind shot, I'm just thinking, like, wow, like, this looks kind of cool. <laughs> <You know, I'd laughs> kind of like to 
get to learn a little bit more about this. And I talked with a couple of people here and there to try and learn some things and picked up a little bit here and there. But then the night before the second test at Edgbaston started, mm-hmm. uh, there was a party going on in, in our housing units. By this point in time, we were in Sydney and a week or two into the semester. And, uh, there was just kind of this like um, block party going on. And this, this kid stumbled into our, our house. I was living with four other kids and he stumbles in uh, with uh, he was friends with with one of the people I was living with, and and he had like nowhere to live. Apparently, his parents had kicked him out of where they were living, and so he needed a place to stay for the night. And uh, one of my friends was feeling sorry for him and said, "Oh, you know, Daniel, you can you can sleep here for the night if you if you need a place to stay." And so this kid comes stumbling into our house looking for beer in the fridge, and I said, "Hey, what do you know about cricket?" <laughs> and so for the next two hours, I just grilled him nonstop about. What is LBW? What's 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 the difference between a wicket, wicket, and a wicket? You know, there's three different <laughs> kinds of wickets, and what do all of them mean? What's swing bowling and, and spin bowling and seam bowling? And what is um, how do you read the scorecard and uh, the fielding positions? And how do you line the batting order? And anything I could think of in terms of strategy, what I had heard the commentators say on television during the first test, the few days that I watched, and then things I had read in the newspapers. And the magazines on the newsstands, I just, anything I came across, I just grilled him on. And he was really patient with me, and I'm forever grateful to him. That's, I think that was the only time I ever met the kid. Um, oh, wow. But he, he's, he's a very uh, vital person in the course of my cricketing journey. Daniel Hogue was his name. And um, so the next night, the, the second test at Edgbaston starts, and I watched from beginning to end, and I don't know what happened in that test. Mm-hmm. And... Once I got through that, uh, I was basically hooked hooked for life. I, I started watching the rest of the series and never looked back. So um, uh, you were in Australia for a semester? Correct. I, I, I always grew up. I was a huge sports fan growing up. Uh, I was a huge New York Giants football fan. My family's had season tickets for almost 50 years now for the New York football Giants and grew up a big Mets fan. The week before I left for Australia... Uh, I went to see the Mets play the Braves. I saw Pedro Martinez throw this gem. Uh, that was <laughs> the last baseball game I got to see before I, I went off to Australia and last sporting event, really. And I thought that would be kind of one of the fun last thing to do. And I, I wanted to go to Australia to try and experience sports in a different culture because I had always grown up around baseball, football, Ice hockey was one of the sports I was really serious about. I, I played for a long time growing up, tennis, uh, all these things. When I went off to college, I went to Creighton University mm-hmm. in the U.S., which is out in Omaha, Nebraska. And when I was there, my work-study job was working in the athletic department. I was working in either the sports marketing or sports information. So I worked almost every single athletic event at Creighton for the first two years I was there. I worked men's soccer, women's soccer, volleyball men's and women's basketball, softball, baseball. I went to virtually every single event, with the exception of one or two that I had to miss for exams. And so I was always heavily involved in sports, but I thought I really wanted to take an opportunity to go to a different country and see how the sports culture is there. And I was drawn to Australia mainly after seeing the the 2000 Summer Olympics. I see. I vividly remember watching those events take place on the television. I was just always 
uh, enamored with with just how happy and how friendly everybody was. Everybody just always seemed to be having a good time. And I remember also even before that watching uh, the Millennium uh, countdowns in different cities across the world and watching the fireworks go off on the Sydney Harbor Bridge. Just I was in total awe about that and I just thought that was the coolest thing ever and I thought wow if I could get to to Sydney one day and get to Australia that would be awesome so that was why I I chose Australia and when I went there I always thought I would be drawn to rugby or Aussie rules football Hmm. cricket was kind of off to the side and it just how fate kind of unfolded when I got off that plane and picked up the newspaper everything was uh, just kind of turned upside down and that's how I stumbled into cricket so, so you come back from Australia. I mean, uh, you know, you you've written for ESPN. You write for ESPN Cricketinfo.com. You write for Dream Cricket. Um, so, how did this whole thing with cricket? Uh, you know, when you, after you come came back from Australia, how did this all uh, unfold? So, I had a couple more years to go until I, I graduated. I wound up graduating in December of '07 from Creighton. And kind of in that last semester, I'd hatched a plan. My original plan was um, I went to a graduation party for one of my friends from high school in July of 07. And my original goal was to uh, go to England because there was a – I don't know if you've ever heard of it. There's something called the BUNAC program, British University's North American Club is what it stands for. Okay. And you can get visas – uh, to go to England, either while you're a student or within six months of, of graduating. And so at this point in time, I was obsessed with Shane Warren. And my friend, one of my best friends from high school, he suggested this idea of uh, that, that 2008 was supposed to be, at this point in time, Shane Warren's final county season with Hampshire. And so he's like, hey, why don't you follow Shane Warren around for the season? And you could like write a diary about it and just – go wherever he plays on the road and and just track that whole experience. I was like, wow, that's an amazing idea. Yeah, I should do that. And so I started the process of of applying for uh, this BNEC visa and plan on going over there. And then right around, I don't know if it was December or January, that's when the whole IPL formation mm-hmm. took place. And then he kind of ditched Hampshire to go play in the IPL on the first season <laughs> of the IPL. And I was just devastated. I was like, no, Warney, what are you doing? <laughs> I was supposed to follow you for a season. You've ruined you know, everything. But, but I'd already gotten my visa, and I thought, all right, well, let me try and you know, spin this another way. And, and so at the same time, I was, I was also contacting clubs, uh, cricket clubs, to try and find a club to play with just league cricket because I've, I'd played – club cricket in the u.s but the facilities here which i'm sure we'll talk about later on are are pretty dire for people who've never played cricket in this country Mm -hmm. and i wanted to get a proper playing experience because for a lot of the people who come over here the expats who've grown up overseas and they get some sort of proper experience playing uh depending on, on where they've played and where they come from. They get to play on proper cricket grounds growing up. I never had that experience. I played in my first cricket experiences were playing on four or five, six inch high grass. And <laughs> <laughs> that's not a proper cricket experience. So I thought, all right, let me, let me try and find a club to play with and spend a summer playing club cricket. And at the same time, while I'm doing that on the weekends, 
I could potentially try and find a newspaper or some other media outlet to try and get connected with to try and get um, my foot in the door, get some work experience to try and get into the to the sports writing profession, specifically with cricket. And what happened was when I went over there, I had a good experience playing cricket, but in terms of trying to find journalism opportunities, nobody took me seriously. I remember vividly going to a job fair that was run by The Guardian in London because I was living kind of north London in, in Hertfordshire. Mm-hmm. So it was about an hour train ride to get into downtown London. And I go to this job fair. At the time, I was working a temp job somewhere else in the city. And I go to this leave work early to go to this job fair. And there were a couple journalism schools, sports journalism programs, whatever you want to call them, who were there with a table. And I went to this one table and introduced myself to the guy and said how I was looking to try and get involved in cricket journalism. And he asked me um, a couple questions and I tell him what I've done. And I said, well, what can you tell me about your program? Who Who is well-known who's, who's graduated or taken your course? And he's like, well... We have one gentleman right now who used to play cricket for England, and he's in line for a placement somewhere, blah, blah, blah. And he was kind of looking at me, like, trying to drop it. He wouldn't say the guy's name, and I could tell he was trying to test me to see, like, was I just BSing him or did I actually know something about cricket? And I said, did it actually Giles? He goes, no, you know, a little bit further back than that. I said, um, is it Richard Dawson? He goes, yes, yes, very good, very good. Mm, yes, you sound like somebody who might be a good candidate for our program. And I said, well, I don't know if I necessarily you know, need your program. I already graduated with a bachelor's degree in journalism from a university in the U.S. I'm looking for a job, and I want to have to take another course. And he says, well, you'll never get a job in this country unless you have an NCTJ certificate and we offer it at a very good price. And I'm just like, this is ridiculous. I didn't waste four years of my life just to start over again. I didn't want to have to go through another course. And and so I kind of, that was just the best example of, I guess what I was going through. Nobody, why would they offer me an opportunity as an American who may or may not know anything about cricket when they've got 10, 15, 20,000 other guys who've grown mm-hmm. up with cricket all their lives and can do it. And not only that, they've, they've got a, a British passport. There's no obstacles in terms of you know getting work from it for them. So I came back to the U.S. kind of dejected. And over the course of the next year, events transpired that I, I um, went to the Dream Cricket facility. They have an indoor facility. Mm-hmm in New Jersey and I went there just to do a training session with a club cricket team I was looking to join and the owner there saw me and he was watching me in the nets waited for me to come out and he introduced himself and he says hey you know you're the first American who's ever walked in here we've never had any Americans come here before like how did you get here like why are you here what how did you get involved in cricket and so I started to tell him a little bit about myself and he seemed kind of interested and he says hey you know we have a radio show we do on Saturday afternoons and it starts at three o'clock. So it's, it's like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock now in three hours. Are you available to come on and do the show? And I was like, okay. And so he brought me on, interviewed me. And at the end of the show, he's like, wow, like, this is really interesting. Like, do you do anything else? Like, 
you know, are you working? What, what can you do? I said, hey, well, I have a degree in journalism. He says, wow, you know, do you know we have a website? Um, we're, you know, we're always looking for writers. So if you can contribute content for us, whatever you can do, like, that would be really cool because we've never had anybody who's an American who's written for us before. We've got it. They had, um, and they still do have, Sunil Gaviscar mm-hmm. writes writes columns for the site. Suresh Manon, who I, I think is a fantastic writer. Yeah. He contributes columns for the site. They have uh, plenty of other writers, but they didn't have anybody who was an American. And this was supposed to be a U.S. cricket-focused website, more or less. And so I said, sure. And, and at first I started contributing just columns about random stuff that was going on in international cricket, uh, especially stuff regarding 2020 cricket and, and the IPL. And then um, uh, about a month or so later, after I started writing the columns, I attended the USAC, a national under-19 tournament with the goal in mind to write a few features about some of the players who were competing there because there were some really interesting stories coming out from the first couple of days of that tournament. And so I went to the final day to meet some of these people and get a taste of what the cricket uh, competition was like, how, how good the standard was and whatnot. And I was really, really imp- impressed with these kids. I went for the final and uh, the this, this athleticism, I was shocked at. I was, I, from my own experiences playing club cricket in the U.S., I just thought this would be a bunch of clowns just kind of <laughs> <laughs> running around here and there. And they might be able to make contact every once in a while, but the standard was fantastic. And I was I was really drawn to the the talent that was there. And, and from what I could gather, just walking around there and, and observing things, there wasn't really anybody who was covering this tournament. Oh. And there wasn't really anybody that, that seemed to be covering anything in U.S. cricket. And so there was this, like, giant opportunity, this... this gap there was no there was a market here that was ready to be um, taken advantage of Mm -hmm. and and nobody was seizing upon it yet so i just decided here's my opportunity and started to write a few feature columns about some of the kids who were in contention for selection to the usa under 19 team after that tournament and once the team was named i started to call up and do interviews and write more feature articles about these kids and the more features I did, the, each kid would ask me, hey, are you coming to Toronto to uh, the tournament? Are you going to come come watch this in Canada? And I thought, you know, no, I, I can't. I, I don't have the money. I, I, I was out of work basically since I returned from England. This is, again, back in 2008 when the economy was yeah down in the dumps, and you can say still is to a certain extent. But I had a really hard time finding work, and I was really low on my savings at this point in time. And uh, even the minimal funds it would take to travel to Canada, I, I couldn't really afford. And I just kept trying to make excuses. No, I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't have the money. And and the more these kids kept bugging me, the more interviews I did. I was like, you know, why am I why why am I not going? Is there any seriously legitimate reason why I'm I'm truly not going? And I couldn't really honestly think of one. And so I thought, hey, there's this opportunity here. Sometimes you need to spend a little money to make a little money down the road. And I thought this was one of those times when that was the situation. And so I called in a few favors. My, my brother, I have two older brothers and one of them was going to be married later in the summer and his best man lived in Toronto. And so I called him up 
and I asked, hey, would you mind if I crashed at your place? I can't really afford to stay in a hotel. I really would like to cover this tournament, though. Can you help me out? And he was all for it. He said, yeah, you know, whatever you need, come on up. And so I drove up to Canada for the ICC Americas under-19 qualifier and covered um, covered that tournament. And, and um, from there, I never looked back. I mean, the coverage from what I've been told uh, mm-hmm. by other people was unprecedented. They were saying, like, wow, we've never had people actually attending U.S. cricket matches before. Not only that, like submitting live updates. So I was sending, <laughs> I was sending text messages back to my editor and because I didn't have internet access uh, at there. There's no, there's no Wi-Fi at the grounds they were playing at. So unless you have a 3G card, there's no, um, there's no way to, to do stuff live on your computer. But I had my phone and I was just texting nonstop updates and he was putting them straight onto the website and people were putting comments in the forums like, Oh my God, like this is incredible. Like, thank you so much for, 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 for providing this service. And, and, um, so I did that tournament, came back and I think two weeks later I went to Washington DC for the USAC Eastern conference tournament. And the day before I left, uh, again, I, I called in a favor to one of my college roommates who was living in DC, stayed mm-hmm. with him. And the day before I left, the editor for the website says, hey, how would you like it if we flew you out to Minneapolis uh, two weeks later for the Western Conference Tournament? I was like, whoa. <laughs> Are you serious? And uh, then he says, not only that, but we're going to reimburse you for all the expenses you've had for the time you went to Toronto and for whatever you're going to rack up in D.C. And I was like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> Are you serious? And um, yeah, that was that was my initial um, – getting my my foot in the door in u.s cricket and that's an awesome awesome story um you know uh so you said you know you came back from australia and you wanted to play in england and do journalism there and then you tried out or you wanted to try it with a club in jersey um you know i came to the united states in 1998 from india and my first five years i didn't uh, play with a cricket ball at all. And then my university cricket club came back to life. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we started participating in, uh, you know, league, summer league tournaments in uh, Jersey. The first year we did in Jersey and, uh, you know, the travel was terrible. You know, we had to travel 230, 240 miles one way. So we wanted to get something closer and we moved to Washington, D.C., which was 200 miles. Uh, <laughs> you know, you save 100 miles in a day that way. Um, but, uh, you know, you play in, you know, in my high school. My high school had a cricket stadium in India. Right. Uh, so, you know, you had all proper stands and everything and proper turf pitch uh, maintained regularly and all that. Uh, my college had the same. And, um, you know, you come here, you're basically the outcast. And, uh, you know, if the rugby team wants the field, then you're kicked out. If the women's soccer team wants the field, you're kicked out. Uh, so the cricket, you know, you have to find the place. And somehow we raised enough money to run the club and the university supported us a little bit. But, uh, you know, uh, when we went to Jersey, that was a brilliant experience the first time. We used to call it the submarine pitch because uh, if you're standing on, on the pitch, you won't be able to uh, see the field in the deep square leg. <laughs> <laughs> because the field was slopey that yeah you know you can't see it 
so you know that, that sort of uh, thing and once we had uh, where uh, at backward point was a giant puddle so every time somebody cut the ball you know you had to run get the ball from the puddle wipe it off for next few minutes you know <laughs> so what are your some of your experiences i uh, have a couple of um, very memorable experiences one i'll never forget Happened last year in New York. I started playing for a club, Columbia Cricket Club. Mm-hmm. It used to be affiliated with Columbia University in New York, and since they've kind of um, separated from that because most of the players who are with the team now have no student or alumni affiliation to Columbia. But anyway, they in past years, they played their games in Van Cortlandt Park in the Bronx, which is a place that has, I think, four or five, maybe even more cricket pitches. But... Van Cortland Park was going undergoing renovations last summer, and so they kind of gave the club a temporary ground at Randall's Island. So you're kind of right underneath the Triborough Bridge mm-hmm. in New York, and the the pitch was sandwiched between a baseball field and a soccer field. And <laughs> one week, I think it was the very first week, in fact. That's normal, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's, it's completely standard. Yeah, it, uh, it's that's um. That's your status quo for cricket facilities, if you can call them that in the U.S. You've got just kind of like a a strip of dirt cut yeah. out from the actual like grass and the the baseball outfield, and uh, you you put the matting over the strip of dirt uh, for the matting wicket, nail it in, and that's your that's your cricket wicket. Um, and so on, on the one side, you had the baseball field and kind of, I guess, where the right field line is for the baseball field was the, I don't know if it's the East River or the Harlem River or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it is. But there's a, some river on that side. That's one boundary. And then on the opposite side, the, the soccer field was kind of enclosed by a fence, but the fence wasn't very high. And so and, and the boundary of where the soccer field was was like to the fence from the center, the, the the pitch was maybe like 35 or 40 yards. And this was my first match playing for the club, and our bowling was just garbage, absolutely just filthy. And this guy was who opened the, the batting for the other team. We fielded first. Anything that was on the legs, he just murdered over mid-wicket. And, yeah, I think he was left-handed. And so... Uh, he, uh, it doesn't matter if he was right-handed or left-handed, whichever way, it didn't matter which end he was batting from. He was always going to send the ball either into the river or into the soccer field. And on the soccer field that morning, there was this like seven or eight-year-old girls soccer game going on. And our bowlers just kept on feeding him in his wheelhouse, and he just kept on hammering the ball over mid-wicket. And we lost, I think, three or four balls into the river. But then... He also started hitting the ball into the soccer field. And was, these little girls were, you know, in, in harm's way. And after the the first time, the parents were kind of annoyed. And they kind of started to shout some stuff over at us. But then they threw the ball back. The second time, then they started to get a little more agitated. And started to, like, make some gestures over to us. Like, hey, what do you think you're doing? Third time, he hits it over there. This, I, and I was fielding on the boundary. Okay. So I was fielding right <laughs> on the fence. This dad comes over, and he's got, like, tattoos up and down each arm. <laughs> and he's got, like, chains around his neck and piercings and everything. And he's like, hey, I don't know what you think you're doing, 
But if that ball comes over here one more time and it comes anywhere near my daughter, you better watch out. Because you don't want you don't want to see what I'm gonna do. You hear me? I was like, hey, buddy, like, go talk to the captains. Like, I don't have anything to do with it. I'm not the one hitting the ball over there. Like, if you want to talk to the captains, <laughs> you can you're more than welcome to do that, but hey, I'm not the one hitting the ball. Hey, I don't care who's hitting the ball over. If it touched my daughter, you don't want to see what's going to happen. <laughs> you hear me? I was like, yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> he's like, at the same time, he's kind of like motioning to his waist to like kind of lift up his shirt to you know <laughs> show me if there's like something planted uh, under that he's going to pull out of his pocket. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. I'm just, like, I'm just like, hey, guys, 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 how about we bat just from the one – one end, all right? Like, it's okay if we lose the balls into the river. I don't think we need to be putting balls where the soccer field is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's that's one of the classic cases of disputes that break up because people have no knowledge of what the hell is going on in the cricket field. So, if they see the ball coming their way, they're like, hey, why can't you keep it inside your field? What's wrong with you guys? They don't they don't have a concept of, of the sport the broader community. Um, other things that happen, I, I, I know there's been a couple instances, including one recently uh, at a match in New Jersey, but I also saw this when I was playing club cricket out in Nebraska while I was at it, going to college there. I've seen uh, pit bull training mm-hmm. going on around the fine leg boundary <laughs> with some <laughs> undesirable members of the community, I guess. Uh, I see. P- people who are engaged in illicit activities, tra- training their pit bulls for dog fighting uh, right outside the boundary. <laughs> I don't know if uh, you know people remember the Michael Vick case for people who were cricket fans overseas. I don't know how much news that made yeah. in other countries, but the Michael Vick case, I don't know. That doesn't seem to have yeah. really discouraged a lot of people from pit bull training in certain parts of the country. And uh, apparently they, they feel secure enough and um, – they feel like they're undercover or they won't be noticed <laughs> if they do it at the cricket field because nobody ever shows up to the cricket field. Of course. <laughs> and so if, if they're training their pit bull for, for a future dogfight at fine leg or third man just past the boundary, you know, it's not as if the police are going to show up and chase them away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from what I've heard, you know, uh, leagues in the West Coast, uh, in Southwest, you know, Arizona, Los Angeles – San Francisco, they have much better facilities than leagues in the East Coast, you know. Uh, in New Jersey, uh, when we played, we had to go early, you know. For a 10 o'clock game, uh, we had to be there by 7.30 to, you know, just basically occupy the ground. Otherwise, somebody else can come and claim it and they'll play and you, have, you don't have a ground to play. Well, I know but, even yes, yesterday, we were, I was playing a match on the 4th of July. It was a memorial match and we were... Shooting for a twelve thirty start, and as they were setting up the cones on the boundary, this other group of a couple of families started to set up a volleyball net, kind of where the where the boundary was supposed to be. And we had to kind of say, "Hey, hey, hey, what do you think you're doing?" And meanwhile, on the other boundary, there was a soccer match going on, and they were kind of kicking the ball here and there near near where the cones are. And I was like, "All right, I guess we just have to make do." Um, yeah, it's it's always a it's always a battle. You have a book coming out, right? You're you're in the process of uh, you're still writing it, right? 
We're still writing it. Uh, um, so yeah. all, all these experiences of uh, playing in the United States, playing everywhere else, and how you got into cricket, all those are going to go into it. Like, what, what is the content? A good chunk of the content is uh, my initial experiences, I guess, getting involved in in writing and that whole process of, of trying to get my foot in the door. And I mean, the, the, the initial reason why I went to England in the first place to try and look for a job in, in cricket was because I didn't think I would ever be able to find one in the U.S. I didn't think there were any that existed in the U.S. And it, it was going to be pointless for me to try and stay here and, and hope to build a career in, in cricket journalism or any other cricket associated profession it you're was like never going to happen here you're like the Jimi hendrix of cricket you know Jimi hendrix <laughs> he, he he was a good guitarist and player singer songwriter and then he went he goes to england and then he becomes famous and then comes back to us and then becomes a legend maybe I, i'll take your word for it <laughs> but i mean yeah so I, i and the ironic thing for me was it wasn't until i came back from england after being rejected everywhere that i did get my first opportunities and then Yeah, when I got when I got the opportunities that I uh, that I had with Dream Cricket and then also with with Crick Info afterwards, and I've also gotten a chance to contribute to Wisden. Mm-hmm. I, I just think of like uh, to me, I I was always motivated by when that guy at that uh, job fair told me, "Oh, you'll never get a job." in this country working in cricket. And now I can think to myself, I don't want to sound cocky, but I'm just sometimes thinking to myself like, Hey, like take that, you know, who, <laughs> who's in, who's in England, you know, working for the local village voice or whatever, who's got his NCTJ certificate. Good, you know, good for him. <laughs> you know, meanwhile, I, you know, I've, I've been able to get some pretty amazing opportunities in a, in a short amount of time opportunities that, some people who've worked for 20 30 years in in cricket journalism in, in certain countries have never gotten the chance to do so I'm, i'm pretty grateful for that but i have to say uh, i always have that in the back of my mind all the rejections that i faced in england and, and that's one of my motivating forces but yeah so the initial experiences just trying to, to get involved in, in cricket writing and, and playing cr- club cricket in the us um and then uh, another big chunk is just yeah from those initial experiences covering covering the US under 19 team from that initial tournament that national under 19 tournament in Brooklyn in May of 2009 to the first qualifier in Canada in July of that year then the second qualifier the global world cup qualifier in September and then through through to the under 19 world cup in New Zealand and just a lot of the things i i had to kind of fight and caught and scratch my way to to um get some of these opportunities and and just to make it to New Zealand because there was at one point in time it was I did not look like I was going to be able to make it to New Zealand to cover that tournament and then basically 48 hours uh before or 72 hours before the the first warm-up match the World Cup warm-up match in the opening ceremony in New Zealand somebody came forward and fronted me the $2000 to get the plane tickets to get to New Zealand Ooh. and less than <laughs> i think less than uh yeah 24 hours after i got that you know the money the person came forward and i was you know the next pretty much the next morning i was uh 
at Newark Airport and flying to Los Angeles and then on my way to New Zealand. And it was pretty hectic. And so basically, yeah, covering, covering the U.S. Under-19 team throughout that whole experience and all the, the tournaments and kind of zany experiences I had covering um, tournaments, the, the domestic USACA tournaments and, and club cricket experiences and, and all of that uh, sandwiched together over the, that kind of seven-month journey. I mean, some of the anecdotes I tell people who, who have no concept of cricket, a lot of my friends still really don't understand what I do, and my family has kind of no clue what, I, what I'm doing. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, if I, if I tell them, if I, I tried to tell them the websites and, and the work I do, and they just kind of kind of shrug their shoulders and they're like, all right. I mean, they recognize ESPN, obviously, but I say I write cricket and they're like, well, how many people will actually click on the website for cricket as opposed to the uh, baseball or the NFL stories? <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, it's hard for them to kind of grasp, um, yeah, what it, what it is exactly I do. But I mean, some of the anecdotes, um, like I said, there was one incident in, in Minneapolis at the Western Conference tournament where they were lining things up to start the tournament and things were a little bit behind typical U S mm-hmm. cricket affairs. Everything starts on IST and that's like <laughs> when you show up, when things happen, when we get around to it, all right, no worries. And, they were about an hour delayed, and they were trying to kind of distract people by putting out this big, huge brunch breakfast, whatever you want to call it. So, hey, this is the start of the tournament. We've got this huge breakfast for all the teams. Start eating, and in a few minutes, we'll have the grounds ready. And So they were still kind of nailing the mats and setting up the cones and all that stuff. They finally get everything ready. And they gather all the teams, and they say, all right. Uh, I think it was the president of the Minnesota Cricket Association, Golem Saeed at the time. He says, all right, everybody, welcome to the 2010 USA Cricket Association Western Conference Tournament. We're so happy you can be here. We're really excited for this tournament, blah, blah, blah. Start off the first day of cricket. We're going to have the singing of our national anthem. So he hands the microphone to this guy who is looking very proud, dressed very sharp in his Shirvani, and takes the microphone, and he starts off, Janna Ganna Manda. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just listening to this, and I didn't think anything of it at first. I thought, hmm, this is fascinating. Is this some sort of new cultural experience that they're trying to bring to the cricket to sing all the different national anthems for all the different players who come from wherever they've come from? And you got about 15 seconds in, right, right around the part where Punjab, Gujarat, and then the, somebody rips the microphone out of his hand. And they say, all right, all right, uh, change of plans. We're actually going to have USA Cricket Association CEO Don Lockerbie inaugurate the tournament with a speech, and they give the microphone to Don Lockerbie, and he says whatever he has to say about what a great opportunity this is, and play hard and play fair, and let's go cricket, whatever he said. <laughs> and then Golem takes the microphone back and says, okay, everybody, now we are going to have a recording of the National Anthem, 
And then they found a tape or a CD or something of the Star Spangled Banner. And then they, <laughs> they play that over the PA system. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember calling my editor up later that day and calling up a couple of my friends and they just they were just rolling around on the ground <laughs> laughing and I remember one of my friends Bosker one of my best friends from Nebraska says you know in some countries you can get shot for doing that it's <laughs> <laughs> so like did anybody arrest him for for singing the Indian national anthem instead of the Star Spangled Banner <laughs> I mean. That stuff only happens in U.S. cricket. (laughs) All right. Um, So on that note, uh, we'll uh, end this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing all your experiences. Uh, Good luck with your book. Um, I hope uh, you can come on, uh, you know, when the book is close to completion and, you know, out for publishing. And uh, we can discuss the book further. Thank you so much for having me on, Subhash. It's been a pleasure to be part of your podcast series. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you, thank you. Boys, if they went down the ground, this could be six as well. It's a big A. It's a Straight down the ground, almost into the dressing room. And that tells the story. What an innings this is. What are Eunice's being slaughtered? Couch Talk.